just here. And I don't know what it is about this church and being with you guys, uh, but I always feel like I've just been with you, and you are always so welcoming and so kind, and it's always a great pleasure for me uh, to be here. Last year, I left uh, Peachtree City about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I said I'm going to get there plenty early, and I have time to work on my lesson, and then I'm going to be there. I won't have to worry about traffic or anything like that. And as Kyle mentioned, uh, I got rear-ended on 285 on the way up here and sat on the side of the road for about two and a half hours while they sorted all that stuff out. And I walked in here at 7.02 uh, last year about this time. So that was, that was a year ago for me today. And to be honest, I was on 285 a few minutes ago, and I was still a little twitchy. Every time I see somebody coming up behind me, I just wait for them to hit me. Now, the second part of that story you need to know is that, that you don't know yet is that I left here. Um, I spent the night in Buford Wednesday night last year, and I drove to Rome the next morning for a preacher's meeting. And I drove to Columbia, Tennessee for a uh, memorial service for a friend's dad on Thursday. And I came back to Peachtree City on Friday. On Saturday, I was in the same rental car that I was rear-ended in on uh, Wednesday. And I was on my way to preach a wedding on Saturday in Peachtree City. And I got rear-ended again. On Saturday morning, on my way to a wedding, this time, the first time it wasn't too bad. First time I just got touched up a little bit. If it had been my own car, I wouldn't have even worried about it. But because it was a rental, I didn't want them to stick me with a big thing, so I stuck around for the cops and all that. Well, Saturday morning, after the Wednesday that I got rear-ended on the way up here, I got plowed into Saturday morning. Airbag deployed, the whole thing. They knocked me into somebody else. The... the on Wednesday, I was the first car in a three-car pileup, and then on um, Saturday, I was the middle car in a three-car pileup, and it ended up totaling the car. I missed the wedding. Uh, it was just, it was just un unbelievable. Uh, so that was a week that I have tried to forget, uh, although not very successfully. So maybe pulling in today, I was like, this, this just feels like deja vu. It feels like I should be getting hit or rushing in or something like that. But hey, I appreciate you guys' patience and, and love to be with you. Appreciate Kyle coming down and speaking for us. It is the, I, I can get to Chattanooga before I can get to Buford. It's, it's a fact. I can get to Birmingham before I get to Buford. It, it is, it is, seriously, I mean, it's, it's, it's that it, so I appreciate Kyle for coming down. Our folks have been wanting to, we did videos the last couple of years for Summer Series, and our folks have just said, can we get some live people? And I said, well, I'll try. And Kyle was willing to come, and, and he said he, he takes great pleasure in, in worshiping with other Christians, and I know that we all do that, and so I appreciate him for coming down to Peachtree City and, and um, doing our Summer Series for us. And it's my pleasure, as always, to be here, be here with you. This is one of those uh, lessons where Kyle says, hey, you can come. Anytime you want, here's our lessons. Sometimes you, you let somebody go through a list of lessons. You're like, yeah, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. And then you hear, well, I guess I'll take that. Well, the first one Kyle threw out to me, said, I'll take that one right there. That's the one I want. And so uh, I, I'm appreciative tonight to be able to talk about one of the things that is uh, one of my favorite passages in, in Scripture. Now, you, and I'm going to use this as a, as a class, so, so I, don't, I want you guys to speak up. If you don't mind speaking up, if I ask you a question, 
you know, raise your hand or just holler out. That'll be fine. But I would like to get some of your feedback uh, tonight. Um, we know about parables in Scripture. We know about allegories in Scripture. We know in the Old Testament about uh, um, Nathan's parable to David, which incidentally is kind of related to what we're talking about. We know about uh, uh, several other parables in the Old Testament. We know all about Jesus' parables. But if you had to think of some, some metaphors in Scripture or some similes that were, that were predominant in Scripture, what, what would be some of those predominant metaphors in Scripture? Can you think of some? What's that? Jesus being the door? Yes, several, several times. And we, we are going to actually talk about that tonight. Uh, what, what are some other metaphors that were, were predominant in Scripture? Shepherd and sheep, bing, bing. That's the one I wanted you to say, actually, by the way. That's the one I wanted you to say. I wanted to, I wanted to actually build. You know, you never, when you throw it open for somebody to answer questions, you never, you always hope it's going to work out just how you wanted it, right? You want, you want three or four, and then you want somebody to get the right one. Well, that's the right one, right? Uh, so that, that's, that's the one we're going to talk about tonight. What are, what are some others, though, that you can think of? Shepherd and sheep is, is throughout Scripture. And that's the one we're going to talk about tonight. What are some others? Jesus says the word. Okay, okay. What's that? The gate or the door? Yep, right. At which, which incidentally is related to the shepherd and sheep metaphor because it's in the context of the shepherd and sheep metaphor that Jesus says once, at least in John 10, I am the door, right? So he says that there. Sin awaits it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Any others? Well, here's one. There's, there's always the agricultural metaphor, right? There's always the, the sowing in the seed. There's a lot of sowing in the seed. Uh, Paul will use it when he talks about the patient farmer who waits for the crops to come up. And Jesus will use it in lots and lots of parables, the, uh, the wheat and the tares, the, the parable of the sower, that just all through there, there's the agricultural metaphors of the sower and seed. But, and, and I can think of another really, really predominant one you, what's that? The living water. Yes, yes, that, that is. And, and boy, that'd be a good lesson to talk about, wouldn't it? I love, that's one of my favorite lessons right there, too. Uh, but, and, but the other one that I'm thinking of is kind of related to the water one. What's that? Fishers. Yes, yes. The fishing metaphor is very, very predominant. It's, it's, you got the parable of the dragnet. You got the fishers of men. Uh, that, so the, the fishing idea... Is, is a big one. So, so between the seeds and the fishing and the sheep and the shepherd and the water, and so there's all of these metaphors in Scripture, but one of, the, one of the most predominant metaphors in all of Scripture is the metaphor of the sheep and shepherd. Sister up here just a few moments ago reminded me that she was reading in Psalm 100 where we are called the sheep of his pasture. Um, you will... Uh, think of probably other famous passages that have to do with, with sheep and shepherds, right? But perhaps one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the idea of a sheep there, um, Isaiah chapter 53, which we'll touch on, he was led uh, as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So that's the metaphor we're going to work on tonight, the idea of Jesus... Uh, as a couple things. 
one, the door of the sheepfold, which we won't spend a lot of time on that, as the shepherd, we won't spend a lot of time on that, but particularly Jesus as the Lamb of God. Jesus as the Lamb of God. You would think, I think my brother Kyle wrote a book titled The Lamb of God. I don't remember if Kyle or Eric wrote it. One of the two wrote it. They, they've got a series that's called The Word of the... Behold the Word of God, behold the Lamb of God, behold the maybe Son of God, I don't know. One of them them wrote on the Lamb of God. And uh, do do you know who said that? Who who in Scripture said, use that phrase, the Lamb of God? Who? John the Baptist, very good. John the Baptist is the one who uses the phrase, the Lamb of God. John sees Jesus coming to him, and and we need to be careful with this because I think if we're not careful, and and I know I've said it, and I've been wrong in saying it. Hopefully it was a long time ago when I said that, but I have suggested that, uh, you know, the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said. Now, what I'm about to discuss with you before we get off of that particular passage is that uh, is a little speculative to be sure. But what do we know about Jesus and John's relationship? Not necessarily their theological relationship, which is a whole another big ball of wax that we could talk about because John the Baptist's ministry was super significant. It was so significant, in fact, that Jesus said, of man born of woman... There has not been born greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. Have you got your CVs up to date? You got your resumes up to date? Reference here. I have a reference page on my resume. Reference, Jesus. Well, Jesus, what do you think about John the Baptist? Well, of man born of woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Well, you got the job, right? Because you don't get a better reference than that. So theologically, John and, and John 1 opens up this idea of John's ministry to us, what it meant for, for John to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, to be the one who makes straight the way of the Lord. That was a, that was a reference to something that um, citizens of the Roman Empire would have understood. Because when the emperor of Rome was going to come visit a province, he sent out a road crew ahead of him. And they went on every road that he was going to travel on and they made sure that every pothole was filled. They made sure that every limb was cut. They made sure that the roads were broad and in good repair because the emperor was coming. And John's role as the the one who goes before, as the forerunner, as the trailblazer, as the one who makes straight the way of the Lord, is the idea that those, that those Roman imperial servants would have done when they were preparing the way for the emperor to go before them. And that's what John's role was. And John will say, you know what John will say of his, his, his relationship to Jesus. He'll say, look, I'm not worthy. There comes one after me who I'm not worthy to tie his shoe. I'm not worthy to take his sandal off. Of course, John would baptize Jesus, and we know that, but... but Let's think a little more, a little more personally. What were, what were John and Jesus' relationship? They were cousins. They were cousins. 
Uh, Jesus was six, is, am I right, six months older? Six months, uh, John was six months older than Jesus? Just six months. I, I think it's unlikely for us to assume that that's the first time John had ever seen Jesus. We know that Mary and Elizabeth were close. We know that John in the womb rejoiced and celebrated to meet Jesus in the womb. Boy, doesn't that, doesn't that tell us a lot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Sure. And, and, the, and that a babe in the womb would do that. Mm, mm, mm. There a couple, I would say. Probably Samuel, maybe, and probably Samson, uh, and then one of the other, uh, either Jeremiah or Isaiah, one or two. Several of the prophets were told that they would be that from the womb. Uh, but, but, that is, but that is significant. And John was going to be that from the womb. You know, we know that. Um, because of, of the revelation to Elizabeth and Zechariah both. And when Zechariah is struck mute uh, while John is, is they're waiting for John, then when he writes, remember, his name is John. And his voice comes back to him. And everybody says, oh, what, what is this child going to be? And of course, what this child would become was he would become a Nazarite, from birth. Uh, he would follow in the, the footsteps of, of Elijah, living out in the wilderness, wearing the, the uh, camel skin with the belt and, and, and eating locusts and wild honey and, and, and in a lot of ways a, a wild man. But he was also a man who, who garnered thousands and thousands of followers. People were going out to John. They were being baptized. And John had so many followers. He had so many disciples who perhaps hoped that he would be the Messiah. And he tried to make sure that people did not have that expectation of him. I am not him. There is one coming after me whose sandal I am not worthy to undo. And so one day in John chapter 1, he sees Jesus come to him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're told at that point that some of John's disciples immediately began to follow Jesus. And that was okay with John. As a matter of fact, some people are going to go talk to John and they're going to say, hey, don't you see that your, your guys that are following you are now following him? Doesn't that bother you any? And John says something that I, I wish that we would write on our mirrors or write it on a card or just remember it and say it to ourselves every day. Do you remember what it says? Here's what John said. John said, he must increase, and I must decrease. What if every one of us had that idea? He must increase, and I must decrease. That every single day, we got a little closer to being more like Jesus, so that when people saw us, what they saw was not us necessarily, but what they saw us was Jesus and Jesus' image. 
And I love the humility of John. Now, before we leave John, though, let's, let's not think that despite the fact of what Jesus said about him, despite the fact that he's this wonderfully humble person, that he is not a person who was a superhuman person. That John had his own struggles with faith. You'll remember when John is in Herod's prison, he sends messengers to Jesus and he says, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the one or should we look for another? And you can hear the despair there. And, and here's the thing, and this is, this is the theme of the Gospel of John in a lot of ways. There are a few themes of the Gospel of John, but one of them, and it's repeated twice in John chapter 1, are these three words, come and see. Come and see. John is a book about evidence. Incidentally, it was written to, a, uh, to confront an error or a heresy in the first century going into the second century that came to be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a word that means to know, to know. And Gnosticism claimed that Jesus couldn't be completely man and he couldn't be completely God. He had to be one of the two. He couldn't be both. And so the whole thrust of the Gospel of John is wrong. Jesus was all man and all God at the same time. So John is confronting this heresy of Gnosticism. So, so you'll see it in, in the opening verses of, of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with Him. Without it, with Him, everything was made. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is writing to, to confront this heresy of Gnosticism that said Jesus, he, he either had to be man or He had to be God, but He couldn't be both. And John says, no, He is both. He is both. And the fact that He was both man and God makes it possible for John the Baptist to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to run some history back for you, but, but here's John. Remember, remember John's in prison, and John says, Are you the one, or should we look for another? And what you'll recall about this, if you think about it, is that John had been told specifically by heaven, by God, it had, been, it had been revealed to John by God that the person that he baptized, whom the Spirit came down and remained on, that was the Christ. That's what John had been told. And so when John uh, tells Jesus, um, it'd be better if you would baptize me. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And of course, Jesus says, well, you know, let's it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Two things are going to happen there. One, it's, it's not that Jesus needed to be baptized for repentance. It's not that Jesus needed to be baptized for the remission of any sins. It's not why G Jesus is being baptized. And we can debate about the issue of what it meant to fulfill all righteousness. But one thing that we know is that John had been told when you baptize and see the Spirit come down and remain on Him, that's the Christ. 
And so when Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove and remains on Him, John knows that's the Christ. You ever known something and then doubted it later? And I don't think that John is, is dealing with significant type of atheistic doubt. I think, I think John is, is in what we might call circumstantial doubt. And sometimes we get in that situation where we just look around and things are just rough and dark and bleak. And we just wonder. And so John sends messengers to Jesus, are you the one or do we wait for another? And Jesus says, go tell John what you have seen. Go tell him about the blind receiving your sight. Go tell him about the deaf hearing. He goes through this list of things that he wants him to tell John. Go tell him what you have seen. Come and see. The phrase come and see is used twice in chapter 1. Come and see. Go and tell him what you've seen. And then he appends that instruction with this, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John, here's what you know. Here's some more evidence. And hang in there. This one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, be honest with you, this Lamb of God sermon is a sermon that is about five hours long. But y'all have got a clock back there on the wall, so we won't give you the whole, we won't give you the whole thing. And maybe you've got something to do this evening, I don't know. The Braves have already played, so you don't have to worry about that. I said it to record, and then I found out that they played at 3 o'clock, so I was a little bummed. Uh, but let's, let's talk about this idea just a minute. The Lamb of God. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God told them that if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Satan comes along and says, oh, has God told you you're going to die? You're not going to die. God knows that the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Eve said, well, you know, I would like to be like God. Maybe God's holding out on us. So she looks at the fruit she sees that it is good for food, is pleasant to the eyes, that it is desirable to make one wise. John will later in 1 John describe all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh. Looks like it'd be good to eat. Tell me. It's pleasing to the eyes. I want it. I covet it. It's pretty. Desire to make one wise, the pride of life. I can be like God. So she eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam. He eats the fruit. And at that moment, spiritual death enters the picture. Spiritual death enters the history of man. Adam and Eve don't die right then, right? It's not, it's not like Ananias and Sapphira. They don't they're not struck down by God. It's not like Nadab and Abihu. They're not struck down right then. It's not like Uzzah who touched the ark. Not struck down in that moment. But death comes in. Death comes into human history. Incidentally, what is the first death recorded in Scripture? The first physical death recorded in Scripture. 
What's that? Cain and Abel. Anybody want to try that? Anybody want to try another answer? Physical death. What's that? Very good. Nobody ever gets that, by the way. If I had some candy, I'd hum it back there at you, or a button or something. The first physical death in Scripture, I didn't say human death, I was a little, was a little tricky. The first physical death in Scripture is not human death. It's animal death. Adam and Eve all of a sudden look at each other and they're naked. Wow, what are we going to do? Well, they've been naked for however long they were before that. I mean, it wasn't bothering them before, but now they realize they've got to cover up. It's one of the things that sin does. It causes us to put up barriers. It causes us to put on facades, put up things that separate us. And so they fashion leaves for themselves. Probably big, nice leaves, I don't know, but whatever it was, it just wasn't enough. <laughs> you and I have seen the vacation Bible school pictures of Adam and Eve trying to cover up with, I don't know, if they, if they do the whole, the whole big bunches of leaves or they've got the big leaves or whatever it is. Whatever it was, it wasn't enough. And so here's what we're told. That God makes clothes for them out of animal skins. So the first physical death that we read about in Scripture is God taking the lives of animals because of the guilt of men. That's what we read. He clothes Adam and Eve appropriately. He covers their guilt. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame with animal skins. And beginning at that moment, we then unroll a bloody history of what we might call substitutionary death. And we're going to walk through some of that. We don't have time to walk through all of it. We're going to walk through some of it. And in that bloody history, that's what's going to lead us up to John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next death we read about again is not Cain and Abel. We always want to jump the gun to get to that's the first human death. But we also know that Abel was doing what? He was offering sacrifices of the first fruits of his flock. Abel is already offering sacrifices. Now, I don't know why that was. I suggest uh, probably that. Um, he knew that was pleasing to God one way or another. Uh, I'm not sure that man is eating meat at that point, believe it or not. I think Genesis uh, chapter 10, when Noah gets off the ark, suggests to us that that's the first time man has permission from God to eat meat. Strangely. I don't want to get into that. It's a whole other deal. But Abel is offering sacrifices to God of his flock. When Noah gets off the ark, what's he do? How many, how many of each animal is on the ark? You guys are smart. You guys always get the right answer. I need to quit asking y'all a question. Y'all always get the right answer. Seven clean, two, of un two uh, male and female unclean. Now, does that mean there were seven pair of them or there were seven of them? I think it means there were seven of them. Um, when Noah gets off the ark, he offers to God one of every clean animal. 
Now this was pre-Moses, so clean and unclean is still, <laughs> it's still mentioned here, uh, but we don't have the specific details about clean and unclean animals that we will later get in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. But he offers one of every clean animal. And to me, that makes sense that that would, leave, that would then leave three pairs of clean animals after that, uh, male and female. Uh, so uh, when Noah gets off the ark, what's the first thing he did? He offers sacrifice. And then from then on, it's, it's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. I'll, I'll hit on a couple of my favorite instances of it. One of them, of course, is Genesis chapter 22. It's the story of of Abraham and Isaac and the son of promise, the son of the covenant. God comes to Abraham and says, go, go sacrifice your son Isaac. Here's what he says. He says, your son, your only son whom you love. Three things, your son, your only son whom you love. That's interesting because that's going to come in later somewhere else. Abraham loads up, takes the wood, Takes a fire, loads up, goes to where God tells him to go, puts the wood on Isaac's back. And there are at least half a dozen to a dozen parallels between Isaac and Christ in this story. At least. Very, very specific parallels. Isaac's walking up the hill. He's carrying the wood up the hill, just like Jesus carried the wood up the hill. And Isaac looks around and says, hey, we've got the knife, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, where's the lamb? And do you remember what Abraham tells Isaac? Now, Abraham is prophesying here. And he says, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, Abraham doesn't know that there's going to be a ram caught in the thicket up the top of the hill. He doesn't know that. He thinks he's going to offer Isaac. The Hebrew writer tells us that he believes that God's going to be able to raise his son from the dead when he offers him. That doesn't mean Abraham had any less faith. It just means that he was, he was getting ahead of God. But he prophesies when he says God will provide himself a lamb. As a matter of fact, he, name, he names that place. And scholars will tell you, scholars will argue that that place upon which Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac would later be the Temple Mount. A place that, Mo, that Abraham would name Jehovah Jireh. What's Jehovah Jireh mean? God will provide. Fast forward just a little bit. Well, several hundred years, not just a little bit. A few pages in Scripture, but several hundred years. Exodus chapter 12. Nine plagues have already happened. The tenth one's coming. Here's the tenth one. Firstborn are going to die. Incidentally, when you look at all the plagues, you'll notice that each and every one of the plagues, God distinguished between Israel and Egypt. When it was dark in Egyptian territory, it wasn't dark where Israel lived. When the Egyptians' cattle died, the Israelites' cattle didn't. God distinguished. He drew the line. He defined. But, but in, this particular, in this particular plague, it was going to work differently. That there was, going to, there was a response that was demanded of those who wanted to avoid the plague of death. Those who wanted the angel to pass over. They were going to kill a lamb. Scholars tell us that there were as many as two and a half million 
Israelites at this point. All those Israelites were to go out by families and all choose a lamb. And they were to choose that lamb four days in advance of the uh, Passover plague. They were to keep it there in front of their house. They were to feed it. They were to get it ready. I wish we had more time for this. Uh, and then on the night of the Passover, everybody in Israel, they weren't in Israel, but all the Israelites, were to take those lambs and kill them at the same time. Let's say you divide that number by five. Say you divide two and a half million by five. That's a lot of lambs, isn't it? A lot of lambs to all be slain at the same time. I don't know if you've ever killed a lamb, killed a goat, seen a goat killed, heard a goat killed. I don't know if you've done it. I'm not going to go into the details. It's not pretty. It doesn't sound pretty. It doesn't look pretty. You hold them up by their back legs or tie them up by their back legs. You cut their throat. You would not believe the sound that comes out of them. You would not believe the blood that comes out of them. 400,000 lambs killed. Catch the blood in a bowl. Don't take that blood and put it over your door. And when the destroyer comes over and sees the blood over the door, he will pass over it. Paul will later say this about Christ. For he is our Passover. For he is our Passover. We get to Isaiah 53. We get to John's assertion that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To Jews who lived the Passover, you know Jews live that Passover every year? That every year they did that? They reenacted it every year. Still do. Reenact that meal, reenact that blood over the door, reenact that killing of the lamb. So, so to folks who had been steeped in this culture of substitutionary atoning sacrifice, it is an entirely new thing for somebody to say, the man right there is the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 would prophesy about him. The Ethiopian eunuch would ask, right? Who's, uh, who's the prophet talking about here? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip, beginning at that point, began to preach unto him Jesus. Incidentally, the eunuch's next response to the sermon of Jesus is, see, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Don't, don't ever let anybody tell you that we just need to preach Jesus. Just forget baptism. No, the preaching of Jesus is the preaching of baptism. Show you that clear as crystal in Scripture. Here's water what hinders me from being baptized. If you believe with all your heart, you may. The Lamb of God who takes away... Well, why do we need a, why do we need a Lamb of God? Why do we need, why do we need a, a man to be that? If, if lambs and bulls and goats are good enough, well, that's the rub. Because they're not. They're not good enough. They're not enough. Because Romans will tell us that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It will later tell us that the wages of sin is death. And the Hebrew writer will tell us 
that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then we'll go on to say and explain that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take care of the sin of mankind. But the thing is that it's not possible that your and my blood could take care of it either, even though that was the price that was due. Our, our blood is due. Our death is due. But that wouldn't solve the problem. Because we are marred, because we are blemished. You know that lamb that had to be offered had to be a lamb without blemish, without spot. And we all have blemishes and we all have spots. And there's not one of us who could give any drop of our blood that would take one bit of our sin away. But there's one who could. That was the one who John pointed out and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Kyle, remind me about my time here. Am I supposed to, invitation right now, is that what I'm supposed to do? More or less? That's no help at all. Okay. All right, well, let's, let's, let's do one more thing. You'll know that Jesus was betrayed on the night that all the lambs were killed. You know that? That that Thursday night when all the lambs are, are killed, that's, that's when Jesus was betrayed. The Passover feast occurred when he was in the tomb. It's why on Friday, uh, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus go to Pilate and they say, hey, can we get his body down from there because uh, we gotta, it's a big feast, it's, it's our high feast and we need, to, we need to get him in the tomb so we're clean so we can eat the feast. So they rush and they get Jesus in the tomb on Friday before sundown. We know what happens on Sunday. Praise the Lord, we know what happens on Sunday. Praise the Lord, we know what happens on Sunday. They went to the tomb and he wasn't there. He would speak to Mary. First one he would speak to. I love that scene. And then a few chapters after that, we'll see Jesus, the second Sabbath, well, the second, second Sunday, not the second Sabbath, the second Sunday after his resurrection. For some reason, Thomas was not present in the room with the rest of the disciples. He said, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. We saw Jesus. He said, well, you're right. I don't believe it. Unless I can put my fingers in, in his hand, the nail holes in his hand, unless I can put my hand in his side where that spear went in, I'm not going to believe it. And so the next day, remember what I told you, the three words in John are, come and see. So the second Sunday after Jesus' resurrection, Thomas is present with the disciples. Jesus appears. Thomas, come and see. Put your fingers here, you want to? Put your hand here. You want to? Incidentally, we're not told that Thomas ever takes Jesus up on that invitation. We're not told that he sticks his fingers in his hands. We're not told that he sticks his hand in the side. Here's what we're told. He says, my favorite words in the whole Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. See what John's trying to do here, how he's wrapping up this idea about Jesus being both man and God. 
My Lord. They could be anybody. My master, my teacher, sir. My Lord and my God. John will later write in Revelation 5. There's this beautiful scene in Revelation 4 and 5. John has a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1. Later, in the throne room of heaven, heaven is in a moment of profound silence. A scroll that is the will of God has been found and nobody is willing, nobody is worthy to open it. Nobody is worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. How are we going to find out what the plan of God is? How are we going to know what the will of God is if nobody can open the scroll? And an angel comes to John and he kind of pats John on the shoulder and he says, John, it's going to be okay. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to get excited. Oh, I like the sound of this. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That sounds awesome. That's who we need to beat the devil. That's who we need to beat Rome. That's who we need to win this battle. And, and it's almost as if there's a curtain there at the back of heaven. And John is waiting for the revelation of who is worthy to open the scroll. And he knows it's been announced. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's almost like the curtains, the curtains pull back. And John is waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for this lion. And when, he, when the curtains are pulled back, he sees something that he had not anticipated. Because it doesn't look like a lion at all. It was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Heaven has already declared it. But here's what John sees. I saw a lamb. As if it had been slain. And the lamb comes forward. Unrolls the scroll of the will of God. And all of heaven breaks out in a song. You know what the song is? Worthy is the Lamb. We sing it. Worthy is the Lamb. If you're here tonight and you need the blood of the Lamb to wash your sins away, And we want you to come tell us that. We want you to know that He loves you so much that He would do everything in His power. And it is enough to cleanse you from your sins if you desire to be saved and to have your sins washed away. You can be baptized into the Lamb's blood tonight and be called a child of God a Christian and join your voices with ours as we sing worthy is the Lamb of God that was slain. If you're here tonight and you want to become a Christian or you have another need that we can help you with, we hope and pray you'll come. Tell us about it while we stand and while we sing again. What can wash away?